Hello, oddballs. Hello, are you well? I hope you are well. Today I be recording with a video. Hello. Just to see if I can make a YouTube video, you know, I don't know. Let's let us see how it goes. I put stupid faces, but it is fine. I do what I do and it's okay. <laughs> anyway, I hope everyone's doing marvelously. I'm doing okay, you know now that time of the year where things are just I'm tired yo tired I just wanted to say that while I was typing this up my YouTube music was recommending Viking music and like metal Disney songs which I'm like fully into at this point I, I couldn't think of anything better right now I was having a jam while I was busy while I was busy typing this out Anyway, besides the point, in some interesting news, guys, I got over a hundred listens. I know that doesn't feel like a lot, but to me it's a lot. Like, I really appreciate it. So thanks for listening to me talk about the morbid things that I talk about. And, you know, I hope that you enjoy it. Please DM me on Instagram or, you know, email me, whatever. If you have any suggestions for any episodes that you want to hear, you know, my Insta handle is Cup of Taboo underscore podcast with an at in front of it <laughs> oh yeah shame and I mean I'm pretty sure most of you know about the the three girls who were murdered in New Zealand the South African family um they're saying that it's the mother at this point a lot of speculation around why she would have done it it's incredibly incredibly sad um I think that they said that she had to go off her meds in order to do you know to get to New Zealand and they were only there for a couple of weeks it's just so 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 sad and I feel so sorry for the family right now I just especially the dad oh man it breaks my heart it really breaks my heart anyway that's fully besides the point on top of that is the Gabby Petito case which I will cover when all of the information is out I know that they've just recently found her body they've just confirmed that it's her body so, yeah, it's just a, it's an incredibly sad story as well. And then with Brian being missing, it's just, it's just, it's a, it's a mess. It's all a mess. I don't know why this had to happen to such a beautiful young girl. It's just so sad. Um, but yeah, I hope that they find him and I hope that they find answers. I really do. And I hope it happens quickly. Uh, I do feel like he's probably fled. Well, I mean, obviously he's fled. I wouldn't say, sorry, he's not missing. He's on the run. Let's put that out there. But I, I hope that they find him and they get answers from him because what in the hell? What in the hell? Besides the point now, I hope that you're ready for your weekly dose of strange, dark and terrible, delivered and served in your cup of taboo. Warning, the following episode contains descriptions of extreme violence and death. Listener discretion is advised. So I just wanted to first mention that a lot of my research for this episode came from the book The DeSalza Murders, uh, the story behind the brutal axe attack by Julian Johnson. It is a very interesting read, and I think he covered the case quite well. Uh, I do remember when this happened back in 2015. It was one of those cases that everyone was glued to, like their TVs, the internet. Everyone was like, "What? What happened? We we need to know." It's just that it, it was that shocking. Oh, in case you haven't figured it out, I uh, I'm talking about uh, the Van Breda Van Breda family murders today. What is Steven? What is your emergency? I um yeah. I need an ambulance. Lots of um you need an been, ambulance? Yes, please. What's your name, sir? Uh, Henry from Bradar. Henry, what's the yes. contact number you're phoning from? Um, my home phone number, but um, I'm not sure what the home phone number is. My cell phone. Uh, we're at 12 Horska Street, please. What is this number that you're phoning from? 
Is there someone else that can speak if you're not able to? No. I'm Who else is in the house? There's no one else. There's I one need else the is. contact number, please. Yeah, okay. The ambulance to go to what? Number 12, Hoska Street. Hoska. Hoska. G-O-S. G-O-S. K-E. What area is this? It's in Stellenbosch. And it's, it's in the Zolta estate. Yeah, can you please just send an ambulance or more than one ambulance to the Zolta Wineland in Stellenbosch? The Zolta. Yeah, can you find that please? The Zolta. And you the patient? No, no, my family is someone attacked my family. Hey? Someone has attacked my family in my house. Okay, so you need the police or the well, ambulance. And an ambulance, please. Yeah. Who is um, injured? My, I think everyone. Everyone in your house. Everyone, four people, yes. Adults, two adults. Two adults and two, well, three adults and one teenage girl, yes. What are the injuries? Um, head injuries. I look. Are they conscious? I don't think so. My sister's moving, but that's it. Okay. So, as you could hear, that was quite a disturbing 911 call. Well, a portion of the disturbing 911 call that was made uh, by 911. I mean, I think it's 017, our emergency services, that was made by Henry on the date of the attack. So, on the morning of the 27th of January, 2015, a call was received by emergency services at 12 minutes past 7 in the morning. The caller was Henry van Breda. He sounded incredibly calm and put together, stating that his family was just attacked by an axe. The call is so incredibly frustrating, because the emergency service representative was just like completely incompetent. But, um, you know, he, he, he sort of was like, uh, I need help, my family is in pain, well, they've been attacked, we've been attacked. And this lady was like, okay, but uh, I don't have your address, sir. Okay, but I can't find it, is that the one in Buttersach? And he's like, no, it's in Stellenbosch. And she's like, I'm only picking up Buttersach. And then he has to spell things out, and the whole call lasts over 20 minutes. And she says that the reason that she was like this was because she thought it was a prank call because of how calm he was. I mean, we're not exactly very well known for our quick emergency services in this country, but come on. Like, be better. Anyway, the whole call, he is extremely calm, soft-spoken and quiet. And ugh, the ladies on the line, they just almost sounded like they were just having a chat over tea. They were like, oh, okay, yeah, oh, do, you, do you pick that up? Oh, okay, cool, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then eventually they, they send someone. So, Henry Christou van Breda lived with his family in De Selza Wine Estate in Stellenbosch, Western Cape. They stayed in a beautiful home and they were a beautiful, wealthy AF family. On the 27th of January 2015, his parents, Martin and Teresa van Breda, as well as his brother Rudy, were viciously and violently axed to death. His younger sister Marley was also attacked, but she miraculously survived. Henry had some superficial wounds, and he claimed that he passed out after the attacker left. So, that was a quick breakdown of what happened. Now I'm going to get into the finer details. So I read through the entire court document, or the entire findings of the court document. It was like 270 pages long. That's a lot of reading, especially in court terms. It's... It's a lot. I'm just telling you now that I'm very glad that I didn't choose to become a lawyer. It's not for me, huh? Not for me at all. I just want to quickly give you a quick breakdown of the family themselves. The Van Breda family, or Van Breda, sorry, family, was a very, very successful family. Martin who was about 54 years old, was an incredibly good businessman. He was passionate about education. He started some schools. On top of that, he was just really good at business. Like he just, he knew how to make money and he made his money. 
And Teresa, who was about 55, 56, was a homemaker. So she stayed at home and did all the things at home while Martin did the work and stuff. Rudy, their eldest son, was about 21. And he was busy doing his master's in mechanical engineering at the University of Melbourne in Australia. Marley, the youngest, or the daughter, who was the youngest, was 16 at the time. And she was in high school. And Henry was also registered at the University of Melbourne to do his degree in physics. So, a very smart family, let's just put it that way. They're all very clever. Like, very, very clever. So, they originally were from Pretoria in Gauteng. Then they moved to Australia in 2006 for Martin to do work. And in Australia, they also did extremely well and they lived in beautiful, gorgeous houses. And all the children attended good schools and they all did, like I said, very well academically. In 2014, Martin got a super exciting business opportunity back here in South Africa and it was going to be opening a private school. So as I said earlier, he was very passionate about education and I mean, I think that shows in like where his kids are at. And also, as well as the fact that Teresa was missing her family and friends back in South Africa, they were like, okay, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to move back. That's what we're going to do. So at first, it was just Martin, Teresa, and Marley that moved back. Rudy and Henry stayed behind in Australia to try and finish their studies. So Martin did keep the house in Australia because he did plan on going back there at some point. So first, they moved to Gordons Bay in the Western Cape, and then they moved to sells a wine estate in Stellenbosch shortly thereafter. They bought the home in March 2014 for 4.6 million rand. That's a lot of money for a house. Although, to be fair, the Western Cape uh, property prices, they're ridiculously high, hey? I'm just saying, Western Cape, eh? Very expensive. As somebody that moved from Joburg to Cape Town, it's ridiculous. You just don't get... It's, I suppose it's just so much prettier here. It makes sense. Oh, I think I touched my mark. I'm sorry. I'm not good with this whole video thing, eh? Also, sorry about the mess in the background. I didn't know what to do. So I'm just recording myself talk, which is a bit awkward. So back to the family. So the Dezelza Wine Estate is one of the most beautiful estates in the province. It is on a wine farm and just, it's gorgeous. The security in this estate is also some of the best security. And as you know, in, secure, in South Africa, you need good security, baba. You know. So just to hammer home how wealthy they were, Marley was enrolled in Somerset College, which was roughly 104,000 rand a year. That is one of the most expensive schools in the country. I think Maha School was like 12,000 rand a year. If that. I don't even know. Public school, baby. Cougars to buy. Ugh. In August of 2014, Henry came back to South Africa. So there were rumors swirling around that he had dropped out of college and he just claimed that he was taking a gap year. It was later found out that he had apparently been suspended due to drug use. But that's just, it's alleged, you know? So when Rudy joined his family in South Africa about a week before Christmas, they all went to Gauteng to visit family members, and they also spent a few days in Neisner in their holiday home. So on the Saturday before the attack, Martin took his entire family to Gaanspai, which is near Hermanus, to do some shark cage diving. This was one of the things that they really wanted to do, so he was like, cool, let's go do it. And this is one of the things on my list to do, but uh, I don't like the cold, eh? Cold water, Western Cape, it's ugh. also seasick. Ugh. Rudy intended to return back to Australia in February. So now, in the middle of the night, on the night of the attack, the neighbor's children had woken up inexplicably. Could it have been due to noises across the street? An argument, perhaps? When the police arrived at the scene at 12 Hoska Street, they walked into what one detective called the worst thing he had ever seen. Let me try to use the power of words, and I think I'll try and insert a little drawing on the video if I figure out how to do that. But I'll try and use the power of words to describe what I've seen in terms of diagrams of how this 
house was laid out. They're all slightly different, but I, can, I think I can give you sort of like a an overview. So basically, when you walk into the front door, there was a dining room table almost directly in front of it. And then to your left, there would be stairs leading up to the bedroom. So they're those stairs that have the landing in between. So you go up, get to the landing, turn to your right 180 degrees, and then more stairs that go up, which leads into a passage that goes into all the bedrooms. So if you carried on walking straight from the front door, if you're back, back downstairs, past the dining room table, you would walk to the open plan kitchen, which is an which had like an island counter type of thing separating the kitchen and the entrance dining area. And then there was the back door in the kitchen that led you to the back outside. So if you stand at the island in the entrance hall area facing the kitchen, to your right was the lounge and to your left of the kitchen was the pantry and then the garage. So that, that was the downstairs area. And if you go upstairs, immediately to your left was the bedroom where Henry and Rudy slept. And then if you turned right to the top of the stairs, the first bedroom was Marley's room and then her parents' room. Uh, the boys' room was ensuite as well as the parents' room was ensuite bathrooms. Marley's room had a bathroom just outside of it, basically ensuite. So, let me now get into the gruesome, gory scene that they walked into. When the emergency services arrived, they found Henry outside. Well, they found him, he was inside, he came outside to greet, greet them. He was wearing his sleeping shorts and socks, and that was it. He had a few small wounds, uh, a black eye, and he also appeared to have peed in his pants. The detective, or the first responder, said that Henry smelled like he had been drinking. Not necessarily on the day, but he said, you know, people have a smell after they've been drinking. He apparently smelled like he had been drinking. So they walked in very warily because they didn't know if there was still an intruder on the scene. So as they entered the house, they saw the blood on the stairs. And they also saw that the back door was open in the kitchen. So one of the first responders actually video recorded the whole thing as he arrived, you know, as evidence to sort of make sure that they had something of what the scene looked like as they arrived. So as they went upstairs, it became a lot more terrifying. There was just blood everywhere. It was a bloodbath. And at the top of the stairs, they found Teresa with a gaping wound, blood everywhere, dead. Marley was lying next to her, bleeding, but alive. So they urged an ambulance to arrive for, for help. They were like, you guys need to get here now. We've got one person that's alive. Well, two, technically, including Henry. So they then went into the boys' room where they saw Martin lying face down on the first bed, which was Rudy's bed, with, a deep, with deep wounds in his back and behind his head. Rudy was found on the floor close to the bathroom door in the room and there was a pool of blood in the center of the room. Rudy had been most viciously attacked with the worst wounds. The axe was found on the stairs landing and a kitchen knife was found on the floor in the bedroom. They rushed Marley to the hospital where she had surgery to try and save her life. Henry was examined in an ambulance, his wounds were dressed and he was taken to hospital for a full medical examination later. Besides the absolute bloodbath, there was nothing that was really out of place. There was a laptop and a handbag on the dining room table. All electronics were still in their rightful places. There was supposedly over 800 rand in that handbag. Nothing, and it was incredibly neat, apparently, downstairs, is what one of them noted, you know, later on. So Henry was asked to provide a statement at the scene by the detective who arrived. So at this point, Henry was supposedly questioned as a victim. And according to him the following happened. Now, the, the version that I'm giving you now is kind of like a mixture between what he said at the scene and also what he said in his statement at the trial. So this is what he said happened. Him and his father and brother shared a bottle of wine. Then they watched Star Trek 2 at about 10 p.m. After the movie, they all retired to their bedrooms. Him and Rudy sat on their laptops for a while and then Rudy went to sleep. Henry stayed up and watched anime. I believe it was One Piece for a few hours. He said that he then went to the bathroom for a number two and he played games on his phone while he was relieving himself. He did not close the door all the way and he says he cannot remember or say how long he was in there. He also said that he did not turn on the light. He said that he heard a strange thumping sound coming from the room and he said that he could hear that it was not a good sound. So he peered through the door and saw an attacker standing over his brother's bed 
wielding an axe, hitting Rudy with it. He said that he called for help, and then his dad came into the room and turned on the light. His dad then allegedly lunged over the bed, either to shield Rudy or to jump at the attacker, who then brought the axe down on the back of his father's head. His dad just went limp, so it was sort of said that he tried to do like a rugby tackle. So at this point, the assailant then went to the door where Henry could not see him, and there he hit his mother, who was now standing in the doorway, and it is alleged that he also then attacked Marley. Henry stated that he could not see what was going on, but he heard the attacker laughing while he did this. Then the attacker came for Henry very slowly, and he lifted the axe. Henry said that he was very afraid, but he tried to fight off the attacker. He said that he managed to get the axe out of the attacker's hand, but then, while he was holding the attacker, the attacker pulled out a knife and was like slashing it at him. And then he ended up stabbing Henry in the side. Henry stated that he pulled the knife out and the attacker ran down the stairs. Henry said that he then threw the axe in an attempt to hit the attacker while he was going down the stairs. And the, the axe had hit the wall. Henry then said that he slipped on the stairs and he fell, but he got up and ran to try and catch the guy. But he had exited through the back door. Henry went through the back door, but then went back inside. He attempted to call his then-girlfriend, Bianca van der Westeisen, who did not answer, and this was at 4.24 a.m. He also did a Google search for emergency numbers at about this time, and then he stated that he was going back up the stairs, and upon seeing his mother and sister lying in the passage, he supposedly passed out and only came to about two and a half hours later at 12 minutes past 7, he tried to call emergency numbers from his cell phone, which did not go through for some reason, and he eventually used the landline and had that painfully long call with the emergency services. During this time, he said that he was super stressed, so he smoked three cigarettes at the kitchen counter and he tried to calm himself. When he was taken for a medical examination, the police now were starting to consider him as a suspect, so they asked the doctor to determine whether he had a concussion and if they thought that his wounds were self-inflicted. After this, he was then taken to the police station to give his formal statement about what had happened. There, he spoke to a police officer who wrote down what he had said. He said that he was tired and he just wanted to go home at this point. So that, the statement that he gave then was, I'm sorry, I've got hot chocolate that I must drink. The statement that he gave then was sort of mostly what I said now, but later on, a couple of the details you'll see actually changed which, oh, hold up, my leg is stuck. Ugh. So, yeah, that's something, but we'll get there, we'll get there, don't worry. So now, on to the investigation. The police suspected, sus suspected, the police suspected that Henry had actually committed the terrible violence that morning. They just needed to now prove it. So one of the neighbors in the estate said that she heard Henry, she heard shouting, coming from the Von Breda house at about 10 p.m. And she said this went on for about an hour. So it was known that Henry used drugs and apparently Martin had quite a problem with this. I mean, obviously. And he allegedly threatened to cut Henry off if he didn't get himself together and actually start doing something with his life instead of just living there, doing drugs, not working. Could this have been the source of the argument? I don't know. Rudy was like the golden child, he was very clever, sporty, well liked by everyone, and Marley was also very clever, beautiful, and apparently incredibly bubbly. Henry was described as a loner. His father had, at one point, found Dacha in, or weed, in his son's possession, and it was also said that he was using tuck, there's no proof of this, but that's what it was said, and it was reported in 2014 he did spend some time at a rehab center for drug and alcohol abuse, also allegedly. Only two years after the murder did the story come up that Henry was suspended by the University of Melbourne for his drug use. Shortly after the attack, Henry and Bianca broke up. Marley made a miraculous recovery, shocking everyone because her wounds were so severe that technically she should have died. She shouldn't have survived it. It was, I mean, phew, the fact that she did. So while she was recovering, however, when the detectives wanted to ask her questions regarding the attack, she, they found that she had retrograde amnesia and she could not recall the days leading up to and the day of the incident. So now in South Africa, our police force is not exactly well known for doing things with haste. So <laughs> there's always backlog. So, you know, some system is down or they've screwed up the evidence collection somehow. 
So, oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Just after a year from this terrible attack, Henry was just living his best life. He enrolled at a very prestigious chef school in Cape Town. You know, he was learning to be a chef mostly because apparently most of the other universities wouldn't accept him because of his uh, little stint at Melbourne. So, from physics to chefing, I mean, good for him, he, following his passions, I guess. So, he'd also found a new girlfriend named Danielle, and he, he appeared to have been living a very normal life. So, on the 13th of June, 17 months after the murders, it was reported that Henry was going to be charged with the murders and that he were, would be handing himself over to the police. So, basically what happened was Henry's legal representative was told that morning that the police were going to arrest Henry. So she was like, no, no, wait, he's just going to hand himself in instead. So he did. At about half past three, he arrived and handed himself over to the police. The next day, he went to the magistrate's court and he was accused of murdering his father, mother and brother and attempting to murder his sister, as well as defeating or obstructing the administration of justice. Bail was set at 100,000 Rand and it was granted and the date was set for the 9th of September 2016 for his pre-trial hearing. At this point, the trust that his father had set up was what was paying for his and Molly's schooling. There was lots of speculation about whether this would also cover his legal fees. Because now, if he's the one that murdered them, should he be benefiting from the money in terms of that's what's going to be paying for his legal fees? Anyway, the state needed to prove three things. One, it could have only been Henry. Two, Henry's version could not be true. And three, motive. Technically, in South African law, it's not necessary to prove motive to find someone guilty of murder, but it does help. It always helps to have motive, always. On the 9th of September, the pre-trial hearing only lasted a few minutes because the defense stated that they were still awaiting certain documents and whatnot, so the trial was postponed. Well, it was postponed. It then came out that only four days before this pre-trial hearing, Henry and his girlfriend were arrested for alleged possession of Dacha. Weed. I mean, dude, you're on trial for murder. Well, you're gonna be. Don't go around getting caught with weed, my dude. This was now before weed was okay, you know. This was back in the day when it was like a big no. I don't know if it still is. Um, so, at this time as well, his legal representative had all of the documents for the case and the case notes and stuff in the boot of her car, which was broken into, and only those were taken. Slightly suspicious, but it didn't matter to the court because they had all the copies and like the originals and stuff, so they were like, well, we're going to have to do it. So at this point, Henry and Danielle were staying in Airbnbs, basically, so self-catering units, and it was said that they didn't really stay anywhere for long. They would move around to sort of eat takeaways, and apparently they really didn't live very clean. They, they kind of lived like pigs, according to their landlord people, hosts, what do you call it, I don't know. So, now the third pre-trial hearing was set for the 3rd of February 2017, and the trial itself was set for the 13th of March. And obviously, as everything goes in this country, they were all postponed, wada wada wada. Eventually, things were postponed to the 27th of March, and on the 27th of March, there was a buzz at the courthouse, because Judge Siraj Desai was appointed to the case. The media wanted to be allowed in the courtroom and there was a bit of a back and forth about that. They were like, ah, no, yes, no, yes, no. Eventually, they were given approval with certain restrictions. So basically, the media was allowed in the court, but they weren't allowed to film or take photos of any of the evidence. And also, certain witnesses weren't to be filmed, that kind of stuff. So the case was postponed again to the 24th of April, when it finally started for realsies. Now at the trial, most of the evidence was circumstantial. So there was so much in terms of evidence, but so little in terms of evidence. So it was very difficult. It was like one of those cases where it was like, bah, 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 bah. this happened, but this could have been the case. Because I mean, there was one person, there was no witnesses, there was no, it was hectic. But anyway, the, the evidence that was put forward was the following. The axe that was thrown against the wall was shown to have actually had a controlled force when striking the wall. So this means that after forensic testing was done by a professional, they found that the chance of it actually hitting the wall with the sharp end, with the force that it hit at, was 
highly unlikely and it was way more likely that somebody had actually hit the wall with the axe in their hand it was a controlled force then the next bit of evidence was that the blood spatter experts concluded that the blood spatter that was on henry's sleeping shorts corresponded with him being in close proximity to his father and his brother when they were attacked multiple drops of martin and rudy's blood were found on his shorts and socks however teresa's blood was only found in a little bit on the heel of his sock and there wasn't really any evidence of blood spatter from marley on his person so rudy appears to have been either moved or he moved himself from his initial attack spot which was his bed as there was a substantial amount of pooling of blood in his bed uh, there was also coagulation of the blood there which means that he lay there for long enough for the blood to almost coagulate or thicken and then there was like a strange smear pattern of blood on the floor between his and henry's bed and then at his final resting place it which was on the floor next to the bathroom there was again a pool of blood and it also had started coagulating there. There was also a duvet, which was found on the floor next to Rudy, which appears to have been placed there after the fact, because of the way that the blood was in it and stuff. So Rudy had defensive wounds, suggesting that he tried to block his attacker. Martin had no defensive wounds at all, suggesting that he did not see the attack coming. And Teresa and Marley also had defensive wounds. Marley's wounds were very spread out in comparison to the rest of the family, while Martin, Teresa, and Rudy were all attacked mostly in the neck and head region. Uh, whereas Marley, I think because she was fighting so much, she was sort of hit in a, a few more areas. So it was like arm, wrist, head, ear kind of areas. So the family members had the following wounds, according to the pathologist and doctor. Uh, just this this is a bit of a I, th I think it's a bit of a trigger warning it's it's just a bit of an explanation of what their wounds were so Martin van Breda aged approximately 55 years had external sharp and blunt trauma involving the head and upper back no evidence of defensive wounds mostly skull fractures and brain injuries there were blood there was blood in the nostrils and the mouth and a moderate amount in the pharynx, trachea, and bronchi, 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 and about 100 mils of blood in the stomach. So this indicates that Martin did not die immediately, and he was able to breathe in some blood and swallow some blood. His cause of death was head injury and consequence thereof, a natural cause. His organs were pale, which suggested that he bled out, and the pathologist recorded a 10 by 7.5 centimeter laceration on the right side of the back of the skull. Another laceration measuring 9 by 1.5 centimeters involving the left and back of the scalp, And a half moon shaped penetrating incised wound of 8 by 2 centimeters on the upper right area of the scalp, And a 10 by 0.5 centimeter incised wound on the upper back at the junction of the neck. She also observes a massive skull fracture extending from the front to the back and linear fractures across the whole floor of the cranial cavity at the back. Three of Martin's four wounds were potentially fatal. Teresa van Breda, aged approximately 56 years old, had external evidence of sharp and blunt trauma involving the head, small focal abrasions on the nose bridge, and focal contusions on the right back. There was evidence of defensive wounds because there was an incised wound on the right thumb. So she basically tried to block the attack with her hand and it, it looks like it hit her where the thumb joins the hand, basically. And for her, there were two lacerations to the back of her head measuring 11 by 1.5 centimeters and 11 by 2 centimeters respectively and at the top of the scalp there was a 6.5 by 1.4 centimeter penetrating incised wound so there was evidence of skull fractures and brain injury and there was no evidence of blood having been breathed in or swallowed which means she died fairly quickly cause of death was head injury and consequences thereof unnatural cause her organs were pale which suggested extensive blood loss. Two of blood loss. Two of her wounds could have been fatal. Rudy van Breda, aged 22 years old, had external blunt and sharp force trauma involving the upper neck and head. 
There was evidence of self-defensive wounds as there was a small incised wound on his little finger, which also the nail was basically loose, which freaks me out. Like that's just, I, I can't do nail things. Like, ugh. Uh, there were skull fractures at the base of the skull and skull cap, which shows just how hard he was actually hit. And there were a few small abrasions on his knee and wrist, which suggests coming into contact with a rough surface. Rudy had the following injuries, which was a 7 by 1 centimeter penetrating incised wound on the left side of the upper neck, a large irregular 20 by 4 centimeter laceration with an attached 7 centimeter linear abrasion to the left side of the head. Do you know how 20 centimeters over the head is basically the whole head? Uh, there was loose skull bone fragments as well as a large irregular 16 by 2.5 centimeter laceration with a 7 by 1.5 centimeter wound suggestive of a penetrating incised wound at the center or in the center of the left upper area of the scalp which partially damaged underlying brain tissue. Blood was found in his stomach which indicates that he was alive for some time after being attacked because he actually had the ability to swallow which you cannot do if you are passed out or dead. Cause of death, head injury and consequences thereof, and Rudy had five potentially fatal wounds. And due to the fact that the attacker mostly hit the left side of Rudy, they speculated that the attacker was probably right-handed. Photographs were taken by the first responder, and in those photographs, they were shown to the pathologist, and the pathologist said that Molly's wounds were consistent with the other three victims. However, it was evident that Molly had a much, like a much bigger scuffle with the attacker um, because of the large amount of defensive wounds that she had. She had sharp force injuries to the wrist. Uh, there was bruising to the back of her hands as well as on her knuckles. She was also mostly hit in the head area. Well, you can see that the person tried to hit her in the head area, but she was also hit in the arms and she was sort of like her ear partially came off. It was very rough. The fact that she survived, it's, it's a miracle. So there were two drops of blood on the wall outside the boy's bedroom on the adjacent wall that matched Rudy's blood. Henry had googled emergency numbers just after 4.20 a.m. He then also had attempted to call his girlfriend. Allegedly, one of the devices in the house had Google axe attack, had googled axe attacks, specifically the attack on Peter and Joan Porco in November 2004. And according to sources, the same device also googled how long it takes for someone to bleed to death, as well as a search on dementia. So, I mean, I'm just saying that I feel like there's a certain someone who googled those things. They're quite damning. But it was later explained that the movie about Peter and Joan, Porco, was the next on the watch list, and I don't, I don't know. So, nothing of value was taken from the home. The axe and the knife that were used were already in the house and they belonged to the Van Bredaar family. The axe was kept in the pantry and the knife was kept in the kitchen drawers. Henry had very, very superficial wounds on his body, that being swelling above his left eye, a slight bruise under the left eye. Uh, above his right nipple were two very superficial parallel cuts that were of similar length. On the left thorax there was a superficial stab wound and a superficial cut above the left nipple. There was also a one centimeter deep stab wound to the left of the abdomen. On his left forearm, he had four super superficial, almost parallel cuts. He had two scrapes in his back and two, lastly, he had a bruise behind his right leg. So there was no evidence of forced entry into the house. The estate had no evidence of any sort of intruders in the estate on the night and morning in question. Henry's statement was submitted when he first spoke to just after the murders. He also does make a plea statement in court that has the slight differences. Blood evidence was found with luminol in the shower in the boys' bathroom. However, it was very small amounts and the blood belonged to Rudy, Henry and Teresa. Then on top of that, they also had the 25-minute phone call with emergency services where Henry was super calm. And yeah, that was most of the evidence that was submitted. There was obviously a whole lot more, but these were the main facts that was put forward. The defense team argued that there were two attackers, both wearing balaclava masks, those are the ski masks with the little eye holes in the mouth hole, and they were wearing gloves, which is why there was no DNA evidence or fingerprints from an outsider. 
They also argued that a second axe, similar to the one used on the rest of the family, was brought into the home, and then that one was used on Marley, explaining why Marley's blood was not found on the axe that was found at the scene. They stated that the two drops of blood that were found outside the boy's room on the adjacent property could have been deposited there when the attackers could have been deposited there when the attackers left the, the building when they when they ran away. Um, they also said that Henry fought off his attacker and held his arm so that he couldn't hit him with the axe. And then the intruder produced a knife and started swiping it at Henry finally stabbing with it and they then say that when Henry fell he hit his head which could have caused a concussion or for him to pass out and it was also then later found that Henry had epilepsy and they then said that he could have had a tonic-clonic seizure and he could have been post-seizure when he had made the call uh, I think it's a, called a post-ictal state explaining his slow and calm demeanor they also mentioned that Henry had a stutter and he was taught to speak very slowly so that he could reduce it, which is why he could have been as calm and clear-headed as he was on the phone to the emergency services. On top of this, the defense argued that the DNA evidence supported Henry's story in that he had Martin and Rudy's DNA on his sleeping shorts, but not any blood spatter from Marley or Teresa. Also in the same line, Henry's DNA was not found found on any of the family members. His fingerprints were also not found on the axe, which is, it's confusing because if he, if he threw the axe at the attacker, surely there would be fingerprints on it, right? Anyway, and his fingerprint was found on the knife, and he said that that is from when he pulled the knife out of his side. However, evidence was shown that the knife only went in by about a centimeter, and the knife that was used, it was, it's a Victory Knox, like, big knife. So they, they sort of showed that if somebody was stabbed with this knife, it wouldn't have stayed in. Especially if it was only in by this much. It would have just been like, and fallen out. So, there was that. So that was the, the defense's, the defense's story. So if the court were to believe that story, so then there were supposedly two intruders that came into the house early hours of the morning. They didn't come there to say, take a single thing. They went straight upstairs, started hacking away at Rudy, then left Henry, basically only leaving him with superficial marks. They then left the house with a second axe, which didn't drip blood as they fled. And they also just murdered the entire family for no reason whatsoever. It kind of feels a little bit unbelievable. So they kind of brought that to the, the state when they brought out their arguments was like, well, you know, the family didn't have any enemies that were known, and why would, why would Henry have been left without the wounds that the rest of the family had? So the state argued then that it was quite damning that Henry was the only one found at the scene. The fact that he did not have the same level of wounds as the rest of his family really made him look suspicious. I mean, that the fact that all four members, Martin, Teresa, Marley, Rudy, all of their wounds were incredibly similar. They all were attacked with the same level of brutality. Rudy was attacked slightly more, but in, in general, they all had a very similar style of attack. But then you get Henry, who had these little cuts, which leads into the wounds being self-inflicted. So there was an expert that testified that Henry's wounds were self-inflicted due to the fact that they were so shallow and also so perfect and symmetrical. So now if you're in a fight with an attacker and, you know, you're fighting for your life, the wounds are not going to be neat and superficial. This guy, if he's swiping at you, they're going to be all over the place and, you know, some will be deeper, it'll be irregular. But his wounds were incredibly regular. It was like very, um, in terms of depth and they were very straight, they were very perfect in a way. So it didn't make sense that somebody would have done that. The other thing is that none of the very sensitive areas were cut. So for example, there were no cuts on the nipples. It was just like two straight lines just above the nipples. And they're almost in a perfect line if you see photos. It's just like boom, boom, there it is. So the that's that sort of led them to say, okay, oh, these are um, self-inflicted wounds. The ones on the arm where there were four cuts on the arm, also perfectly parallel almost, which would not happen in... A fight 
for your life. If somebody was doing this to you, it would be, you know, all over the place. And the other thing was that it was all mostly on his left side and he was right-handed. The next point that the state brought up was how strong the security of the estate is. There was no evidence of foul play. Uh, the per perimeter was not broken. There was no evidence that true there was no evidence that two intruders got in, murdered, and then got out undetected. So the way that the estate security worked, there were security guards, there was an electric fence, there were cameras surrounding most of the estate. Uh, the guards did their shifts, like their patrols, where they would drive out, they would go like a few times in the night. If an alarm did go off from a perimeter wall being touched or somebody being too close to it even, they would drive immediately to that area to check. There's also people in control rooms which watch the video footage that, you know, for the whole night, especially if an alarm goes off, they go straight to that, you know, that area with the cameras, they have a look if something's there. On top of that, they've got anti-dig for most areas of the fence, which is, is like, I think it's a big concrete thing underneath the fence so that people can't dig their way underneath it. And on the night in question, there was no suspicious people wandering around the estate. Never mind that, if somebody had to come out, oh, there was no entry, entering or exiting by the actual gate for the whole night, basically, until like 6, 7 in the morning. So basically, somebody would have to come in, in the afternoon or in the evening, and they would have to wait until 4 o'clock in the morning, do the attack, and then wait again to then leave, you know, without being, it's a bit, it just doesn't make any sense at all. So now, the next point that the state made was that there was no evidence of an intruder into the house. Never mind two of them on the scene. There was no foreign DNA found. There were no blood drops leading out of the house, which you would expect to happen if somebody just violently attacked somebody else. They would be covered in blood. And on top of that, no things were taken from the house. So, the if you think about it, if somebody has, an, if you think about the amount of blood that was on the scene, there was a lot of blood at the scene. If you've now attacked somebody, you're going to run through the blood. You're going to be covered in blood because you've now just hacked at somebody with an axe. So your hands are going to have blood. Even if you're wearing gloves at this point, if you run out, blood will drip as you run and as you go out the house. So that would make more sense. So now another interesting point that was brought up was the location and the severity of the attacks. All of the attacks happened inside or just outside of the boys' room. Everyone was sleeping, as can be seen by them all wearing their pajamas, and then it seems that the attack sort of just happened in a frenzy. Uh, if there was an actual intruder, why did nobody try to hide or get away and call for help? Especially, especially Marley, who was only 16. If they didn't know the person who was attacking their family, you know, if it was an intruder, especially somebody as young as Marley would hide or run and call for help. So... The, the next point was the two hours and 40-something minutes that Henry was passed out. They said that he could have used that time to actually move Rudy off of the bed, move his duvet onto the ground, set the scene, you know, stage it, cut himself, hit the axe into the wall, you know, take a quick shower and, and, and get everything in order so that his story would make sense. He even, you know, he probably did fall down the stairs at one point because he did have uh, slight scrapes on his back. So they said that that's probably, he could have fallen down the stairs. But in terms of everything else, it felt, they said, like a bit of a frenzy. So the next point was how calm and how strange his call was. So he managed to smoke three cigarettes and he took his time on the call he knew that Molly was alive. He mentions in the call that his sister was alive and that he, you know, he thought he saw her move. Why did he not go and try and help her? Why did he not run across the road and get somebody? Why did he not, why was he so calm on the phone? Why did he find the time to smoke three cigarettes while his sister was lying up there dying? It's a little bit dodgy. The next point was that his story changed from when he gave a statement to when he actually submitted his plea no when he submitted his statement in court so the biggest changes were the timeline of the events the night before so the fact that they watched the star trek movie was added after the fact he didn't mention that when he first spoke to the police 
uh, this, they believe, could have accounted for the arguing that the neighbor had heard. He said that, no, 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 that arguing that you heard was just the movie. And she was like, I know the movie. I'm, mm, mm -mm. He also said that his in his original statement that he was inside the bathroom peeking out. And then after hearing that there was blood spatter evidence on his shorts, his story changed to him having been inside the room. Just watching. He also only mentioned one intruder in his original statement, and that changed to more than one or two in his later statement. Lastly, he never sought help. He didn't call security. There were security numbers on the fridge, you know, emergency numbers. And he didn't call, he didn't call any of them. He didn't run to a neighbor. He didn't do anything. He, didn't, he did nothing to try and help his family. So this is what they said. They were like, okay, here are the facts. This is what... This is what we believe. This is how we are going to explain what happened on that night. So after, I believe it was two months, um, Henry was found guilty of all charges, which means he was sentenced in the following way. So this is in Judge Desai's words. On count one, the murder of Rudy von Bredar, you are sentenced to life imprisonment. On count two, the murder of Martin von Bredar, you are sentenced to life imprisonment. On count three, the murder of Teresa von Bredar, you are sentenced to life imprisonment. On count four, the attempt to murder the, the attempted murder of Marley von Bredar, you are sentenced to fifteen years imprisonment. And on count five, obstructing the course of justice or the administration of justice as set out in the charge sheet, you are sentenced to twelve months imprisonment. That was the end of the trial. He was found guilty and he is now in prison serving his life imprisonment i haven't heard anything of an appeal i don't know it's now been what three years three years three or four years at the maths maths is hard so now there's a couple of theories i just want to bring up but just so you know i have no opinion on anything this is just what was going around and what some people have said and i found them very interesting i don't want to get in trouble but these are the theories number one henry was jealous of Rudy because Rudy was well-liked, sporty, intelligent, doing well in all aspects of life. So, and, and Henry was the opposite. He was considered a loner. He got in trouble from his dad. His dad had threatened to cut him off because of the drug use. And now obviously Rudy's there. Everyone's like, oh, Rudy, yay. And he just, in a fit of jealous rage, axed his brother to death. And in the commotion, Martin, his dad, ran in and Henry then had to turn on his father, who was now a witness, and killed him too. He then attacked Teresa and Marley because they were also witnesses in this regard. Then set this, the scene staged everything. Theory number two was Henry was high on something and in a fit of rage murdered his whole family, basically. Theory number three, Henry planned this meticulously down to the last detail, but, it didn't ex but he did not execute it very well, as, or as well as he thought he would, this was in order to gain, gain his family's fortune. Because remember, they were wealthy. So he, this, this theory goes that he planned this. And the, the whole reason for it was financial gain. Number four is that Henry had a seizure. And according to the doctor, like some seizures can actually make you not remember hours at a time. And you can do things at, and you won't remember it. So number four is that Henry had the seizure. And he attacked his family while he was in the seizure. He didn't realize what he was doing. And when he came to, he saw what he had done. And then he staged the scene to fit the narrative that he had made up. Number five was that Henry, Henry and Marley were actually in on it together. And at the last minute, Henry turned on Marley again to inherit the large fortune. Number six was that there was an actual intruder who in some sick way managed to pull off the perfect crime, managing to put all the blame on Henry and making him look super guilty just by like inflicting less wounds and by making it look like Henry had done it. You know, so all attention goes to Henry. The guy who actually did it gets away scot-free. Nobody even thinks about looking for somebody else. I mean, I don't know how that would be possible because how do you not leave any evidence? But anyway, perfect crime. And number seven was that it could have been a psychotic break that led to um, all this from a previous drug use or mental disorder, a current mental disorder. Uh, they do say that some 
with some drugs if you use a lot of it it can actually have you know later on in life you can have a mental break due to the the drugs effects on your brain i don't know drugs scare me like you don't want to know so yeah i don't know all i can say that it was a truly truly tragic event and it just it shouldn't have happened this kid had everything going for him in fact the whole family had everything going for them and something happened and changed and now nothing will ever be the same again Molly is basically left alone. But I mean, I'm not an expert on anything at all. No, I'm an expert in uh, talking crap, basically. I'm kidding, kidding. Henry was incredibly straight, like emotionally devoid at the trial. He, his eyes looked empty. He almost like, he, he just explains things. He doesn't have any emotions. He's not sitting there bawling his eyes out and freaking out. He was just like, which to me, it, okay, not i'm not a professional but that it sort of like has a bit of a, a psycho psychopath vibe to it hey but then everyone brought up like everyone reacts to trauma differently i mean who are you to say that this is the right or wrong way to react all i'm saying is that if it was my family lying there i would have done everything in my power to try and help them i would I would run across to the neighbors. I would call everyone. I would scream for help. I would like put towels under their heads. I would try and wrap them. You know, I would first aid the shit out of them trying to stop bleeding and trying to fix things. I know that it's like messing with evidence or whatever, but if you're now, your family's lying there, you surely would like try to help, especially if Molly's lying there and she's moving. You know that she's alive. Why are you not trying to like put a towel or something to try and help her I, I, I don't know to me it just feels a little bit suspicious the next thing is that like I would be covered in blood like I said because I would be trying to help my family so I would be like drenched I would look like that carry the scene when you know covered in blood and he pretty much walked out there with like a couple drips of blood just coming from his wounds does that mean that he just took a shower because that's a little bit weird to me. It, I, I just don't understand it. He also says that he deliberately didn't step in the pools of blood, which is a little bit suspicious as well. Because, I mean, if you're chasing somebody that's just attacked your family, surely you wouldn't care where you're stepping. You wouldn't be like, oh, nope, they're not standing that. No, no, gotta go around it. You would run and you would just get to where you needed to get to, you know? Another thing is, did they... Ooh, did they test inside Molly's wounds to see if any of her family's blood was inside her wounds? Because now the, 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 the defense's argument was that a second axe was used on Molly and that the intruder took the second axe with them because none of Molly's DNA was found on the axe. So a, an expert testified and said that because she was hit all over, it didn't really have time to bleed onto the axe. So basically... With the others, they were sort of hitting the same spot over and over, and that's why the blood got onto the axe. But, like, I want to know, did they test inside Molly's wounds? Because if, surely, if the axe is now covered in blood, they believe Molly was attacked last. If the axe is covered in blood, and she was then hit with it, surely there would be some transference of Rudy, Martin, or Teresa's blood into her wounds all over. Did they test that? Because I, don't, I couldn't see if they did, and if they didn't, why not? Because then that would immediately prove that that axe was used on her as well, which would completely just dismantle the entire defense's case. But anyway, he was sentenced in 2018. To this day, he still says that he is innocent. His girlfriend has been on 60 Minutes Australia, and she also says that he is most definitely innocent, and there's no way that he could have done this. But yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. The, the, the evidence is what it is, and there is no evidence of anyone else being there. So, but also at the same time, some of his story does sort of add up. I, I don't know, this is, this is one of those that's just like, ooh, I don't know. So, I will put Judge Desai's statement in my blog, because it was great. But it is too long to read now. Um, I don't want this to go on forever for six hours. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's like 16 points, but it's beautifully written. Um, he basically tells Henry his fortune. But yeah, so I'll put that on the blog, which is on the website, which you can find at uh, capitabu.com. 
But yeah, thank you so much for listening, guys. I hope that you found it interesting. Uh, let me know what your thoughts are. Let me know if you've got any theories, what you think could have happened. Uh, I just decided to make this as brief as possible and give uh, just the, the evidence that I thought was like the most damning evidence and just like you know, the most um, prevalent evidence. And uh, yeah, uh, obviously this went on for much longer and if I included everything, this would be a three-part thing and I didn't want to do a multiple-part episode for this. So please guys, follow me on Instagram at cupoftaboo underscore podcast. Facebook is just cupoftaboo. Email me on cupoftaboo at gmail.com if you have any suggestions. And now you can go and watch the two whole TikToks that I've made. Hi! So proud. I, uh, I'm going to get into making more. I'm going to get into making more summaries um, for the cases that I do on TikTok. And I'll, I'll do that, you know. Anyway, oddballs, I hope that you have a great week. And I will chat to you all later. Okay, bye. Don't axe your family to death. Okay, thanks, bye.